Welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. I am your host, Emma Graney, and with me today, adjusting the microphone and possibly breaking it, is no. my fellow legislative reporter, Stuart Thompson. No, it's fine. It's fine? Yeah. Everything's fine? <laughs> yeah, I hope Nothing so. to see here? Yeah. Do not panic. Uh, yeah. Okay, hi. Hi. Paula Simons. Welcome back from your exciting Middle Eastern vacation. The Thank rest you. of us stayed here in the snow while you climbed the ruins of Petra, uh, and we missed you a lot. Oh, thank you. It's nice to be back. And Graham is, is scowling going, we didn't miss Emma a lot. Well, you were gone? <laughs> you know what? I came here last Friday, and no one turned up. <laughs> so I did it on my own. Yeah, um, Hold on. Did you actually climb the Petra ruins? I hope you didn't climb the Petra ruins. I didn't ruins. climb. Well, yeah, you can... You can you can't climb the actual ruins. Oh, no, you can climb on some of the ruins. The royal tombs, for instance. You can climb up there and go up the top of the hills, and you can go up around, climb up the hills to the monastery, climb the old steps. But you weren't actually on the outside trying to climb up. I did not know. Okay. No, I didn't try and climb up to the urn to find the mythical treasure that doesn't really exist. How do you know? Well, because I know I didn't do it. Or how do I know the treasure doesn't exist? Exactly. Whoa, deep. <laughs> so anyway... <laughs> This is the shadow boxing edition. Speaking of things that don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So we're going to talk a little bit about the punch that wasn't, or was it, but it probably wasn't. Also, the Renewables EcoFit program, which was just announced this week. And also the government's Labor Code review and the rare joining of forces of opposition parties, which, spoiler alert, didn't actually work. So let's first of all get it out the way. The... Uh, <laughs> Are we not happy to talk about this? Oh, no. I'm sure we're very happy to talk about this. Yeah, so, Stuart, what happened with Derek (laughs) Fildebrand and Michael Connolly? Derek Fildebrand, of course, being Wild Rose, MLA for Strathmore Brooks, and Michael Connolly being the NDP MLA for Calgary Hawkeswood. Yeah, so I think people, I think, sometimes get annoyed when we cover these little... I mean, if this happens, yeah, if this happened on the street, it would be one second and then people would move on and never think about it again. Mm -hmm. Like, somebody yells at you and you go, and then move on. That's about it. But... We, Not uh, yes. me, I hold a grudge, I'm sorry. man. And, and you go, how? Uh, oh, it's like a pirate. For those, of you, listen, for exactly. those of you listening to the radio, uh, Stuart made a fist. Exactly. <laughs> he looked very threatening, and I'm super scared. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was directed at me, Paula. Yeah, this is already going well for me. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, and, and you got to understand that yesterday I wrote about um, taxes and uh, power. Uh, purchase arrangement policy. So when something like this happens, it's very exciting for us as reporters. But what, what, and, but what is this for people uh, who are? Well, we're going to get. Fault, yeah. I'm trying to do a dramatic lead up here, Paul. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so what I think, I, and it was kind of an odd one actually, because you were in the question period. No, I don't think you were actually. No, but I was. On my I was way the, back I, in Jordan. I, sorry. I, this was the Tuesday, so I was in the question period, and yeah. it was a very kind of a non-event question period. Like it didn't. Sometimes there's an atmosphere in there, mm-hmm. like an aggressive atmosphere, and sometimes you can actually see MLAs going back and forth at each other and you know sometimes it's good natured and other times it's definitely not and I didn't see any of that in this one um, but apparently what had happened was that as the uh, Derek Fillibrand Wilderos MLA and uh, Connolly the NDP MLA they were coming out they had sort of a coming together so like you know harsh words to each other and then they had a heated discussion, a heated discussion a yeah. verbal altercation if you will which is also not unheard of we've had that before yeah. I mean you covered the one with uh, Waldrose MLA Panda and uh, Shay Anderson who's now a minister <laughs> yeah um, but I guess there was a sort of a tensed fist Connolly I, I guess he's a bit of a hothead because he was censured for uh 
flipping the bird yep. uh, not too long ago. And just, I mean, he's come down and, and spoken to us about the Gay Straight Alliances too. And he is a passionate person. I, yeah. mean, that, I think that's fair to say. Uh, and sometimes these debates do get personal and they do get heated. Um, so uh, we heard there was a, a raised fist. There is apparently some videotape of this somewhere. Um, I, I guess, Graham, you and Emma both got the runaround yesterday trying to get the video. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of different sides. Derek Philbrandt, I guess, yesterday said he wants to move past it. Brian Jean said, Brian Jean actually did a heavy sigh when I asked him about it. <laughs> <laughs> and Brian, Brian Jean, you know, the, the Derek Philbrandt sigh. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, every, every family's got one of those kids. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I would say, in the grand scheme of things, obviously this is it means nothing, uh, especially on the political scene. But it is kind of interesting, and it's an interesting look behind the scenes of how the legislature works. I mean, there is an element of collegiality to it where they get along very well. Sometimes in committee, you'll see them working towards a common end and doing it really well, and it's kind of nice to watch. Um, but then there is the partisan side where... And Derek Fildebrandt, of all people in there, probably attracts the ire of the NDP more than anyone. And it's because he's a little bit louder than most MLAs. He's active on Twitter. Tax. Yeah, he likes to yell tax. And when light they- bulbs. <laughs> yeah. That's um, but, but did he actually accuse Connolly of assault? No. It's it's an aggressive gesture, I guess, is what. Like, he raised his fist and moved towards him. And Now, Derek Fildebrand also wasn't speaking about this after it happened. They put um, Jason Nixon up, who is the opposition whip. Um, and as incidents in the House, that's who would be in charge of kind of sorting this whole kerfuffle out. Um, Cordes Vargas from the NDP was up yesterday to have a chat about it as well. And she viewed the video and said... No, there was absolutely nothing like that. If anything, it looked like uh, Michael Connolly adopted a defensive, defensive position. position. Now, Graham and I, we've been trying to get hold of this video, haven't we, Graham? Wasn't that a fun thing to <laughs> well, do yesterday? We asked both MLAs yesterday, if you seen the video, and they said, well, look, talk to the Speaker's office. Speaker's is, is controlling this. I went to the Speaker's office, and they said, nothing to do with us. Mm-hmm. We haven't seen the video. We're not taking part in this. This is the House leaders. Both parties are looking into it. They said the Sheriff's office would look into it. And they said, well, look, um, just go see the, uh, the soul gen, the, the justice minister, basically. Went upstairs, and they said, talk to the premier's office. <laughs> and so it's gone full circle back, and the premier's office says, nothing to do with us. So I guess you – I think you have um, – uh, made a request from I the have. sheriff's office. Yeah, because I was. Video. I asked one of the young sheriffs, um, lovely young guy, and he said, "Oh, you need to talk to um, what's his name? Neil. Neil. Yeah." So I went upstairs and said, "Hey, <laughs> is Neil around?" <laughs> and they're like, "Oh, he's just standing on the front steps." So I went out and had a chat with Neil, and he said, "Yeah, you need to actually make a formal request because we don't just let anybody watch these videos. So send me an email, and I'll put it up the chain of command and see where we go." <laughs> so I was like thanks Neil and I have emailed Neil and I think on a grander scale this is why FOIPs never work is because you will never get in trouble for releasing too little information and uh, that is what's going on here nobody wants to be the one who says oh yeah come on over and see this video unless of course the video shows nothing yeah and that case probably does in that case the NDP would love to see a video of him of Connolly doing nothing but they can say, look, nothing actually happened because the government side is saying, look, yeah, as you pointed out, Emma, nothing really happened. There was no raised fist. And the thing is, even if there was a raised fist, so what? Yeah. I, mean, it's, I mean, does, does did Philip Brent actually think Connolly was going to haul off and, and punch him in front of – a, in front of a whole bunch of other MLAs, how how threatened could Derek Fildebrandt have felt? I believe he was walking down the steps, Panda, at the time, 
and of course Rimpanda was oh, another in that, hothead. Yeah, that heated <laughs> discussion with Shay Anderson that time. Actually, yeah. you know, Rimpanda's like super chill. He is, yeah. He's super, super chill. But because Derek Fildebrand has um, what may have raised the ire as well of Michael Connolly is Derek Fildebrand. And if any of you follow me on Twitter, you will know that during question period, I like to tweet out little fluffy animals uh, gifts when there are puffball questions asked. So Derek Fildebrand has actually printed out a whole bunch of um, little tiny Furby pictures and they say, you win best puffball. And I think he's sending them over to NDP MLAs when they ask puffball questions. And as we know, you've taken a little bit of heat from the NDP because they actually take offense to the fact that you call them puffballs when, I mean, what they'll say is... No, uh, I've had... I've had uh, they don't seem to mind. They seem to think it's quite funny. But sometimes, every now and again, um, Thomas Dang, for instance, when I tweeted about it, he did tweet back at me and say, I hardly think it's a puffball to ask relevant questions about my constituency. I'm like, yeah, it was about a school. No, it was already announced. They're, they're Come on, man. questions. They're given to the ministers beforehand, right? So there's actually a couple of times the questions have been drowned out or cut off. And it's still an answer. The minister, the minister yeah, still yeah. has a, a, a written, written answer to a question. I am very pleased to have received this question from my honorable colleague. Yeah. Who has been, they've been a strong advocate for this issue. That's what they always say. Yeah. And I, I don't have any major, I think some people actually have a problem with the puffballs. I don't really. Um, but I think that if you do them, you're going to get made fun of. And that's part of the game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I do uh, like to make fun so, of it. So, but is that, is, is that, and forgive me because I was not there, is that what sparked? This altercation no, between we were just guessing. So I mean, is, was it about was it about gay straight alliances? No what idea. I don't. Um, I, it wasn't. A, it wasn't a. I was going to say that uh, Don, Don Braid wrote about this. Now Don, of course, wasn't here, but Don, like, he's suggesting in his column. Now maybe he's heard something I, I haven't heard that um, Filterbram was sort of needling Connolly about. There's no way Connolly can win re-election in Calgary. That he's done. He's toast. Right. Was he? Well. But Don has written this, so yeah, and fair enough. And you can see how Fiddlebrand could do that to somebody, and how it get them upset because, you know, next election you guys are toast. Yeah, I think you were telling me once, Graham, that you can say whatever you want about a politician. You can call them a scumbag, yeah. but if you say you can win the next election, they'll be like, "Oh, thanks." <laughs> <laughs> it's the only thing that matters. <laughs> I can see that why that would be irritating for him. Um, all right, so let's let's move on as Derek Fildebrand and Michael Connolly and everyone else is saying that we should do um, to the Renewables EcoFit program. Now, the details of this were announced this week. Something about windows and houses and making them more. <laughs> Cozy, yeah. so much more cozy. You were on a plane. I, I was in a different country. Uh, yeah, yeah uh, it, I'm like the worst host this week. Eh? <laughs> I don't know what's happened. Um, it, it, it's a program that is part of sort of a broader batch of programs that the government is doing, uh, and the idea is to make uh, homes and businesses more energy efficient. So uh, it's a pretty common thing across North America. Like most other jurisdictions have this, where we have it in Australia too. Yeah, uh, and so what we, for example, if you want to get some uh, nice new windows that uh, stop the drafts coming in and are more energy efficient, they'll give you uh, up to fifteen hundred dollars for that. And if you want to put some more insulation in your house or better insulation in your house. Uh, it's up to three uh, thirty-five hundred dollars, and so this is part of. Um, That's not a lot, though, is it? Uh, it it's a chunk. Uh, it's, it's certainly well, relative to the cost of replacing your windows. No, the money a thousand dollars for a new hot water tank is probably the most generous of the programs. The idea too is that you will then be saving money down the road. Uh, so it's an investment that a lot of people might do anyways. And actually, Paula's column is certainly worth reading on this, that, you know, this is for people who have uh, the means to do it and just needed a little push. And 
uh, I think Paula raises a pretty good concern that, I mean, you're, what you're doing is you're helping comfortable middle-class people. And the government will say, well, what we're trying to do is create a critical mass um, of people doing this. It lowers prices. If you have a lot of people doing it anyways, it, it, it's a good thing for the environment and a good thing for the economy too. So those benefits will be felt by everyone. Paula, you have you have thoughts. I, I have I have on this. I have many many thoughts. I have many many thoughts. <laughs> you have opinions. I, mean, I have an eighty-five year old house which is poorly insulated and has its original nineteen thirty-two windows. So the personal Paula part of me is quite excited about <laughs> the prospect of having cash to do this. But, but the problem of this, I guess, is threefold. One is that this is a program targeted at people who a own a home and b have the money to put up up front for for what can be quite costly renovations. I mean, new windows can cost a heck of a lot more than $1,500. Um, so, you know, this is plowing public tax dollars back to people who perhaps are not the most needy recipients of, of a public subsidy. Second of all, there's no real way to track the environmental impact of this. Uh, they're not doing any kind of energy audit before and after so you can see whether there was actually an improvement uh, in your in your house's energy efficiency. And so they have no way apart from a, sort of a fairly aspirational, um, I don't want to say made up, but a guesstimate. Uh, <laughs> but of, you did. <laughs> of, uh, of, you know, they say that over the course of two years, this will conserve enough energy to heat 4,000 homes. And even at that rather cheery estimate, that doesn't sound that's not a whole lot. Um, and the you know the other problem is a logistical one, right? You can only use a contractor who's on their list of designated contractors, but they're not indemnifying the contractor. So you can use a contractor on the list, and if they turn out to suck, um, the government says that's too bad, caveat emptor. But if they get enough complaints about a a contractor who's on their official list, then they'll take them off the official list. And you know what about the person who wants to put in their own insulation. Too bad for you. What about the person who bought their their tankless hot water tank four weeks ago? Too bad for them. So programs like this it can feel fairly arbitrary. On your point about not being able to track it, I remember um, asking Shannon Phillips when they had were getting towards the um, you know LED light bulb thing about windows, and she made that very point that, well, it's really hard to track that kind of thing, so we're not moving that direction right now. Yeah, that was actually asked at the press conference because they didn't actually include windows initially, Mm. and then they did. Um, So, And it it was partially along those reasons, and I can't can't remember what her reasoning was, but she said, we do feel like there is a big impact to this. So, um, That's funny because she specifically said, we're not including that because you can't track it, (laughs) like a few months ago. So so let us be. Let us be blunt. Why is the government doing this? I mean, sure, it is to incentivize people to make uh, prudent investments in their home infrastructure, which will, in aggregate, potentially reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But it's also to make the carbon tax more politically palatable, because people who are upper middle class and buying fancy storm windows probably aren't getting a carbon tax rebate. Well, this is their carbon tax rebate. Um, the Alberta environment was not super, super thrilled when I made a parallel to Ralph Bucks in my column. Uh, <laughs> I, but, I can't see why, Paula. But, but you know, I mean, the, the, Alberta government, this is what they do. I bought my 85-year-old house when I was in my mid-20s because Don Getty gave me an interest-free first-time home buyer's loan. So, you know, I, I have already been the, the beneficiary of government largesse in this way. I mean, it's super great retail politics to make people happy. And 
I'd be warmer if I had more insulation in my house. So I'd be all warm and fuzzy overall. There is an issue here. I know you said in your column, Paul, you know, this isn't going to save the planet. I think you're being a bit hyperbolic there. <laughs> and we can. This is a common thing, too, because this is I'm sorry to interrupt, Graham, but this is something you hear about every single thing the government does, because every little part of the climate change policy in Alberta is not going to save the planet. Well, Everything that, Canada does you. is not this going is to. This is the point I was going to make. <laughs> yeah. Thank I'll you, son. I'll let you do it. Your mother and I are very happy. <laughs> I'm being beat up very by toxins on both sides of me. Um, okay. The whole point, yeah, because the thing is, um, if you took that um, stance that these things don't make a difference, then every country in the world should just do nothing about climate change because no one can actually solve the problem on their own. Why pay your income tax? Because you're a little bit could be a lot. I don't know. <laughs> it won't make a difference. Think, Why I, I even vote? A, Why you vote? Because your vote won't make I a make. difference. Yes. Um, it's an issue of every little bit helps. And there's an issue here about, you're right, what we do in Alberta isn't going to save the planet. But keep in mind that Alberta has, um, when it comes to per capita um, emissions, includes the oil sands, we're among the top two or three in the world. If we were our own country, we'd be like number two in the world in terms of per capita um, emissions. Alberta has to be seen to be doing better on the climate change front, and they are doing better. Now, you can argue about the specifics of the program not solving things and being a, a sop to the middle class and, and upper middle class, but they are actually trying to reduce emissions. Now, I, I, I take your point about they, they don't really track these things. When they brought in the carbon tax, I was asking, okay, fine, in terms of, what difference would that make in terms of people driving their cars? Like, would it reduce emissions in terms of people driving their cars, whatever? They couldn't give me an answer. It took days to get a non-answer from them. Yes, when it comes to the, the, the overall narrative about making a huge difference, they have a hard time explaining how. But in terms of the small things, do add up at the end of the day. And at least Alberta is actually trying to do something on the climate change front. And Wild Rose, of course, have a problem with this because... Surprisingly, um, because they keep accusing the government in question period of trying to buy Albertans with their own money. Yeah, it's a novel opposition. Yeah. <laughs> never happened before. No, I well, know. This, this is this unusual is, argument. This is I my know. point. I, t- I took my Ralph bucks too. Right after writing column after column about it, what a terrible public policy it was. And it was. <laughs> I t- I, I, you didn't reject them because no, I, t- I took my family. On, I took my family on a vacation to Banff. <laughs> Just as Ralph would have wanted. That's right. Plowing the money back into the Alberta economy. I, I think there are two good opposition um, criticisms of this. One is that the climate, ch- the carbon tax doesn't exist in the budget. It's its own thing. So it, it they call it the carbon tax slush fund, which I think is a little bit over the top. But it is like... Catchy the, though, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. Uh, but part of the carbon tax being able to be sold politically is exactly what Paula said. You need to be doing this stuff. So... The carbon tax is, you know, ostensibly it's there to take in the money and then put it towards uh, things that combat climate change, like transit and these kinds of programs. But those are also conveniently vote winners. And I, I think that is a fair argument. And then the other one is that this has a feeling of being a little slapdash where um, there are overlap in the programs where if you want a uh, really good LED light bulb, you can get a company to come into your house and screw it in for you. Or soon down the road, there will be instant rebates for people buying LEDs at like Home Depot or something. So I guess that gives you two options to do it. But I mean, they do raise a valid point about 
Are there a lot of Albertans who need someone to screw in a light bulb for them? There was How many Albertans does it take to screw in a light bulb? <laughs> <laughs> there was an interesting point also brought up in question period about the uh, the light bulbs and the EcoFit program about whether or not the NDP would be using the information they gathered from people who had applied for the program to try and d- during the election. That's oh. a clear violation. That's a big That's... violation of FOIP. And that has been a Wild Rose trope. I don't know if they're just trying to put this out into the ether, but that is a just flagrant violation of FOIP laws. Like, it would be illegal to do that. And uh, if they were doing that, it would be a huge scandal. So to bring it up frivolously, I think, is a little reckless, um, unless they know something we don't know, which I, I kind of doubt it. I have to say, too, in defense of uh, of this program, I, it was explained to me that this is just the beginning and that there's another major program yet to be announced, which will cover the much more important issue of retrofitting apartment blocks and you know we've got a lot of housing stock that are not single family homes that are older walk-up apartments older high-rises uh if you can do something to mitigate the carbon emissions of that kind of uh residential housing stock then you actually do start to you know make a quantifiable difference so you know the idea is that these initial things, I don't want to call them loss leaders, but they're almost, you know, they're sort of to soften us up because the total budget for the five years of this program is in excess of $600 million. And they're not going to spend $600 million on light bulbs. I mean, there's something else uh, yet to be announced. For this whole thing is when they rolled out, they rolled out the stick and the carrots are coming, (laughs) you know, dribs and drabs. (laughs) Instead of saying, look, here's a carbon tax, but here's all the good things with the carbon tax. They're letting things come out bit by you know, keep saying there's more coming, there's more coming. We've been but wait, that since January. There's more. There's more. <laughs> Just wait for your steak knives though. <laughs> <laughs> so in a sense, you know, they can argue this is good news being, you know, brought out, but at the same time, the bad news was so bad in a sense politically, it's kind of it doesn't really counterbalance. Mm. And people really aren't sometimes seeing the connection between the carbon tax and the rebates. Well, especially when the rebates come into your uh, come into your bank account without any kind of label on or it. Or they come from the, the federal rebate. government. Exactly, which is what was happening. Um, anyway, I digress. So let's look at the Labor Code review. Now, this was again when I wasn't <clears throat> in the country. Um, but I believe the opposition parties did what they rarely do, but have done a couple of times lately, and banded together in the face of the NDP and said, we don't like this, we want it different, and then... Oh, you were there then. You saw that chance. <laughs> you know, I'm just assuming that's what they did. It was a fantastic uh, Richard Godfrey impression there. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened here, for uh, those like me who were not in the ledge at the time? Well, yeah, I counted uh, this being the third time they've done it. Um, they did it for opioids, um, and they did it for the child intervention uh, panel, and... So, I mean, those are high-stakes issues, and I I did genuinely get the impression um, that um, the Liberal leader, David Swan, was there, but he was not written into the press release. Like, he had a quote had in quote there, in it, yeah. yeah, but he wasn't in, and he had kind of said, like, you know, I've just been kind of hearing this from people in my writing a lot in the last couple of days, so it almost made me made it seem like he had just gone, like, oh, yeah, this is a big deal, and... I wrote a feature about this, um, and the government has very compelling reasons for wanting to review this, which is that, for example, in Alberta... So, so, so just to be clear, we're, they're reviewing two pieces of Yeah, uh, the Labor Relations Code and the Employment Standards Code. Right. Uh, they have been sort of going after the Employment Standards Code, which says, you know, you, you, in Alberta, you're not actually guaranteed job-protected leave. So if you take a sick day in Alberta, 
you could be fired for that. And there's nothing actually to stop the employer doing that. Whereas in most provinces, you get 10 unpaid sick days that are protected from being fired. Um, and also, you know, for example, in Alberta, you need to work a year before you qualify for a mat leave. That's like that's the rule. Other companies may do better things than that, but that is the the rule that's in the province. So they're saying we just want to catch up to the rest of the country. The opposition has two concerns. Uh, one is that the consultation isn't uh, long enough, which it's a five week consultation. Um, they've done an online survey and I think four meetings with people that they invited to it. Um, the opposition says it should not be by invitation. It should be open door. Um, and their other concern, which they've mentioned every day at question period, I think for a week, maybe a week and a half now, is in the Labor Relations Code, there are rules governing how you certify a union. And that is a big issue for the NDP, who are very well supported by the unions. So uh, the opposition is scared they're going to go to a carding system, which makes it uh, almost public if you're voting for or against a union. So it creates a lot of peer pressure there. Uh, as opposed to what's ratified in the legislation right now, which is secret ballot, where you can vote against it and nobody will necessarily know. So they are worried. That's what Gil brought up in question period yesterday, where he got the whole opposition cheering, yes, oh, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, So they are trying to get them on the record about this. Um, The Labor Minister, Christina Gray, won't even touch it. Like, she won't even reply. She won't even address the question when you ask her that. her, her, what she says, and you know, maybe it's fair. The opposition says they have their mind made up, but she says, I haven't even looked at the consultation materials. The deadline was like three days ago. So that is the concern. And they came together. They didn't talk, they would not talk about the union thing in the presser. Um, the opposition wouldn't talk about that. They were saying, all we want is a long consultation period. And I think it's because that is a broadly kind of accepted opposition. The Calgary Chamber of Commerce, the Edmonton Chamber of Commerce, and the Alberta Chamber of Commerce, along with like, tons of other businesses and business uh, groups have all said we need more time to talk about this so yeah so they would discuss the process not the policy yeah so yet on stage um david swan who obviously wants workers to get more rights so he's saying i'm not discussing policy here because it, the wild rose of course would be i think probably on a different page than him so they're saying it was rushed through so they're saying let's have more discussions with various uh, groups employers it's interesting on that stage there was no one there from labor. It was strictly people who were against what the government's doing. And the big issue here is the government has made up its mind. It's very clear on the issue of the Employment Standards Code. They definitely want to give workers job-protected sick days. They, they, this is clear. They've said it in the House. It's important to have this. Now, um, that's going to go ahead. That, they can, I think, it can push through. The other issue, as you pointed out, Stuart, is... Uh, making it easier for unions to get accreditation in the workplaces. They would like to do that, but the problem is going to be how fast, how far can they push this based on Bill 6 with the farm labor, how that thing fell fell apart. They pushed that ahead to give um, paid farm workers basic protection, thinking no one could possibly be against this. And then they found that the farmer groups were against this, both small and large farms, especially large farms, the industrial farms were against this. So now they're thinking, we definitely want to make it easier for unions to get accreditation, but would this blow up in our faces? So they're trying to figure out how to actually do this. Yes. He want, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's some free political advice <laughs> from Paul Simons. Uh, but I think that is a, it's a very interesting thing because 
Uh, as Graham has pointed out, uh, did we ever find the number of which how much the unions get as part of the leadership vote in the NDP? Is it 20 or 25 percent? 25 percent. 25 percent. So they're baked in to the leadership vote in the NDP. So the unions... I, I, I That's call them, messy, isn't it, when you're trying to do this when labor you're, When you're doing legislation about unions and they accounted for 25 percent of your leadership vote... And then you have um, very important our uh, leadership reviews, which, I mean, even if they're not uh, baked into that process, they're still voting. It's union people who are voting. So it's a really tricky one for the government. And as Graham says, it's a big it's a big debate probably in there between what they would like to do and what politically they could get away with. Yeah, and that issue is to follow up. Yeah, point out what we're talking about here is that in the NDP constitution, when it comes to leadership votes, uh, they give up to 25% of the vote guaranteed to affiliated unions who are members of the NDP. So that meant that Notley was elected with a huge chunk of labor support officially in her constitution. Now, when I talked to her back in 2014, she said, yes, it's time to change that constitution. When we become government, we're going to be changing it so there'll be no more unions or corporate donations politically. They've done that. And she said, we'll change the constitution of the party to make sure there's no longer a baked-in component with the... um, with the, with the labors, uh, labor unions, and that's not going to happen. I talked to the um, – Notley's out of town. We can't talk to her this week about it, but according to the, the uh, NDP – We'd like to get her on a slow boat to China. Uh, or from <laughs> China. So they um, are not going to be changing the Constitution uh, for the NDP, despite the leaders saying that two years, two and a half years ago. They have no plans to change the Constitution to get the labor unions out of uh, automatic uh, membership, basically. Awk, as my kid says. Yeah. Why would you kick a hornet's nest? At this point, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and on that kick note... Kick it out. Kick <laughs> <get> out. <laughs> so uh, let's move to our regular segment, Good Stuff from the Gallery. Stuart, what do you have from us today, Tomo? Uh, I have a lovely story that was open on my phone and then closed. Uh, <laughs> this, so this was a piece in uh, the New York Times magazine, which I find myself recommending a lot. Uh, it's always good stuff. And this is about... Mike Judge, who is the creator of the show Silicon Valley. Uh, he did Beavis and Butthead, Office Space, uh, oh, yeah. King of the Hill. A bunch uh, of stuff. Hey? And a movie called Idiocracy, which was very kind of uh, like under the radar movie. It was about how stupid humanity would get in 500 years. Electrolyte! <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he, so now he's saying, a lot of people are saying like, wow, you were, you said 500 years. It only took about 10 years for us to get to this point. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a profile of him, but it's also a profile of the political landscape and the political times in the U.S. and how he has kind of predicted that. And if you haven't seen his show Silicon Valley, it's a really brilliant send-up of the the kind of sanctimonious and kind of righteousness in tech these days. And it's, it's very well done uh, and very accurate. Nice. Paula? Uh, I'm going to recommend a, a fabulous read in The Atlantic uh, by Ross Anderson, which is about a plan in Siberia to re-engineer uh, a grassland biome to, in order to protect Ooh. the permafrost from melting faster and faster, which would be disastrous if the permafrost, which is a carbon sink, uh, thaws and releases its carbon load. Uh, and the only way they think that they can make this work is by retro-engineering woolly mammoths. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and so... We might have woolly mammoths? We might have woolly mammoths. Oh. This It is just an amazing... 
an amazing read about the realities of climate change and the kind of things we might have to do beyond light bulbs. Um, but also, <laughs> it has, it, I mean, it's just, it's a great, great piece of writing and also woolly mammoths. Yeah, I've, that is, yeah, that's got me. I'm actually, I'm also recommending from The Atlantic uh, a piece called Torching the Modern Day Library of Alexandria. It's a super interesting read. Um, at Google, uh, they have a database of 25 million books and nobody is allowed to read them. So Google went in and scanned basically all of these books, uh, but then it came up in front of the courts and they were going to let them be freely available to people and you could buy them for like one you know, dollar, three to $25, all these out-of-print books that currently nobody can read. They're sitting in dust in libraries and they went and like got semi-trailers full of books and would go and scan them in, but the whole plan was canned. Um by the courts but it is an excellent read and I now I really want to read old books that you can't find Graham okay um, <laughs> I, I, I didn't I had nothing to follow up with that old book thing because it's a good interesting thing mine's, it a bit, is interesting. mine's a bit old in the sense that this is a story from 2014 and it's um, reading a lot this week about North Korea just based on the fact we'll soon have a war with North Korea yeah I hooray believe. Yay. Mm. That's good for the price of oil, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Hooray. Um, it's, uh, Great for Alberta's economy, then, is what you're saying, exactly. a war with North Korea. Remember um, Don Getty got himself in trouble for saying things like there was a Chernobyl, the meltdown was good for Alberta grain because we could sell <laughs> now more to, oh, to no. Russia. Don't, don't say these things in your outside voice, <laughs> only the inside voice. Anyway, uh, this is called Escape from North Korea, How I Escaped Horrors of Life Under Kim Jong-il, who's actually the the father of the current leader. Which is something Graham knows and Donald Trump does not. <laughs> uh, so this is about, uh, this, it's an interesting story, and I think it was the Telegraph, um, about a woman who escaped when she was quite young. Uh, just the horrors of life in that country, just uh, shooting people because they would get videos of South Korean shows, and if they were caught giving a video to a friend, they'd be called a traitor and actually like, literally shot in the, in the town square. Anyway, so she escaped. It explains what life was like and how they managed to escape North Korea. It just shows you just how despotic and just how twisted. Nothing better that than a tyrannical is. regime to really. Not that there's anything like that near here. No, nothing at all. Uh, on that happy note, thanks guys for joining me, Stuart, Paula, Graham, and Sean, Yay. our photographer, here to film some of this and put it online at edmontonjournal.com where you can find all of the episodes of the Press Gallery podcast. You can also sign up to iTunes, TuneIn Radio, and our SoundCloud channel as well. Hope that you join us this time next week on the Press Gallery.